Good morning, everybody. It's This Week in XR with Charlie Fink. I'm here with Ted Shilowitz. It is June 17th, 2022. Good morning, Ted. Morning, Charlie. Oh, I should say, as always, our show is brought to you by Verbella. And good morning to you, Verbella, and everybody out there in podcast land. Uh, we have a great guest today, Justin Barad, uh, founder and CEO of Oso VR, the surgical simulator being used now by medical schools yep. all over the world. So uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with him. He has uh, taught me a lot over the years. He's an incredible entrepreneur and also a practicing uh, physician himself. He's an orthopedic surgeon and a former game developer. Yeah. How's that for a pedigree to run Oso VR? Pretty good. And, and this sector, as you and I have talked about a number of times, is really starting to mature. This isn't on the edges anymore. The, no. This technology is starting to become a mainstream use case for uh, for the medical uh, side of the world. So well, everybody good. gets their own cadaver and they get to take it home with them. Exactly. <laughs> and cut it and cut it up over and over again uh, to exactly. their heart's content. <laughs> exactly. So an incredible, strange week where Meta and Apple did not swallow the entire uh, news cycle uh, with announcements. So uh, interesting things happened this week and actually kind of a weird theme in a way. Uh, you know, I think I, if you read the column, I, I kick it off with this discussion of a very meta thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think meta also having to do both with the Greek word meta, as well as the actual evolving metaverse. Yes, you must uh, be referring to the squid game of squid games. Yes. Am I correct here? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's there's a competition. They just started it. I think you could still sign up an audition. And of course, you know how these things go. The auditions, of course, become part of the mm -hmm. show. So they're in production. They're going to run it simultaneous with the launch of Squid Game 2 next year. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, you just got to go there, right? I mean, why aren't they doing this in VR? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, my instinct is this is going to be a big hit that 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 show obviously touched sort of this darker part of humanity that that is in everybody to some extent and and when it's exposed correctly uh through the you know the the, the art and artistry of korean cinema which has become uh, a, a real sort of darling of the industry these days um it'll be really interesting their take on it and the and the prize is not insignificant it's no a, it's a serious <laughs> amount of money that, that one no no well uh, 300 with with 456 participants, it's going to take a long time to winnow yeah. that group down. Yeah. Uh, and they'll have to do it pretty quickly uh, because otherwise that, you know, no production could have the resources. You know, it's sort of like American Idol, right? There are a thousand people who auditioned for American Idol. We only see a handful of them that they decided were the most telegenic or interesting or, you know, had a further plot line for them. Yeah, and you know we 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 are all um, you you and I are into the LARP world, right? Uh, yeah. To a certain extent, and the, that's the a live action role playing game. Yes, for those, yes, of you for, for those that are not familiar with the term LARP, um, <laughs> the idea of of taking something that is that obviously you know had the the highest level of, of awful circumstances and, and consequences, which is death, and creating <laughs> this kind of horror experience that will probably feel fairly real to those contestants. Um, 
Well, being <laughs> sent home is a certain kind of death, is it? Is it not? You know, and look, I mean, people have done this in, in many ways, right? I mean, the horror tropes in the idea of a location-based, you know, haunted houses are a very yes. important part of our legacy yes. as, as people that love so theme attractions and, and theme parks, and the more real it right. feels. And of course, those were, you, you know, the virtual reality of their day, right? They exactly. They use stagecraft for immersion, where they couldn't use, obviously, the technologies that we have access to. Yeah, so we would have to postulate that maybe within the show itself, they'll use virtual reality or mixed reality to put people into circumstances. I mean, I think the, the closest thing I could go back to from a, a traditional mainstream broadcast television model is, remember the show Fear Factor? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Ago, my neighbors actually worked on Fear Factor because of course we live in, you know, the-, the, the Well, this world. is, I mean, this is again, the convergence of television and, you know, AR mm -hmm. to create these live uh, experiences rather than ones that are made, you know, by special effects experts in post-production. So they've got to do, you know, um, use real-time game engines and all sorts of other technologies. So uh, they're all influencing each other and creating this new kind of cross-digital, physical you know, uh, broadcast technologies. So it's a pretty interesting example of uh, where we could be going with entertainment and and particularly, you know, streaming entertainment and uh, reality television. Right, absolutely. So um, other interesting news this week, Blipper, our friends at Blipper who, uh, you know, were pioneers in computer vision, pivoted from uh, advertising, pivoting back to advertising. Uh, they have an advertising uh, tool set that they market to uh, enterprises so they can make their own AR. But they also um, have made a deal with Microsoft, specifically Teams, to integrate that technology into Teams. Yeah. So rather than using, for example, Campfire, which uses you know, headsets and, and magnetic technology to do that. Yeah. Instead, they're using smartphones and QR codes. So you're just snapping the QR code off of teams and then using your phone to take that content and put it in your own space on your desktop, in your room where you now have a, you know, way using mobile AR to walk around it. And you're sharing this in real time with the other participants in the call who presumably also clicked that, uh, QR code. So pretty, pretty interesting application for Microsoft Teams. And of course, Microsoft has said that, you know, Teams is their, you know, workplace play, you know, in the and, same and way that Meta has this tiny little thing, <laughs> you know, uh, called workrooms, you've got this giant thing called Teams that's used by 250 million people every day. By enterprises across the world, yeah. And, and Blipper is one of those interesting companies I, I refer to as a keep on keeping on company, right? They, they, they've lived through all the ups and downs and sideways of, of this emerging market and keep yep. finding moments where they can stay relevant and, and, and stay in business, which is very impressive. And we, we had the CEO, we had the CEO on the show last year, Fazal Galaria. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an impressive group, right? Because it's, it's it's not an easy business when you're trying to keep finding those veins of, of usefulness and veins of economic viability. So and, uh, and this space of bespoke tools for small and medium-sized enterprises, you know, right. on a SaaS model, uh, you know, has a lot of competitors in it. Right. 
I, I won't go into them in a story about Blipper, um, but you know, the people are fishing where the fish are, and it seems mm -hmm. like they're uh, getting a very big boost in that competition by teaming Absolutely. up with Microsoft. So, so good on them. Uh, I got a tour. You remember Engage, the education yeah. platform being used by many uh, secondary schools and universities, uh, including Stanford, uh, and uh, it announced last fall that it was making the LinkedIn of the metaverse. Mm -hmm. So nobody really, you know, I mean, people say shit all the time. <laughs> so whatever. Okay. We reported it. And this week they started giving press and uh, potential clients or existing clients a tour of a product they now call Link. Mm. Uh, and it's super, super interesting. Uh, they've got everything they currently have, you know, classrooms, lecture halls, uh, exhibition halls. Right. They also have now more social spaces, coffee shops. They've added to that office buildings and apartments. You can have an apartment and live, you know, on the 10th floor and have a view of all these floating mountains around you. And each of them has a little city on it. And some of those will be branded and they'll belong to companies and some of them will be open spaces that you can teleport to. So they've really embraced this idea of linking places that are both useful and places that are purely social together. And they're pushing hard in the way they're engineering the community to have a community of uh, verified adults. Right. So they're going to charge $10 a month. Uh, not because they're greedy, but because they think it's important to establish a commercial, trusted, and encrypted identity that goes around with you. It moderates behavior, it enables e-commerce, and most importantly, it, it basically calls out the kids and the unserious people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not very much money, but it's enough that if you weren't using it, you'd probably can't. Yeah, it's a gate, right? Yeah. And, and these, you know, it's interesting, that type of product and, and these things that we're starting to see the glimmers of are really the real metaverse. Like the, the idea yeah. of what's kind of happening, when we reflect back on our Web 2.0 heritage, is when the, the kind of idea of websites started to become this thing that, oh, of course you have a website and of course you have a presence on the web. And these are the beginnings of that, right? And there are a number of different companies that are dancing around this idea of permanence, that they're, you're going to have a place on the, the, the Web3 version of the internet that uh, if you're advanced enough, you'll be using it in a headset. And I presume it's somewhat cross-platform, Charlie? It's PC, it's PC and, uh, and um, VR, both right? Quest and PC VR. Right, so, so you can go into it from a normal compute environment and an advanced compute environment. Yes. And... You know, once we start to see not just five or 10 of these, but hundreds, if not thousands of these sort of spaces, then it's going to start to become like an understood thing that this is the next part of the web. I think the uh, question seen that a little before. I, I think the question here is right, who is going to make the thing that everyone flocks to? Right, right. And, you know, who is going to build that tool that allows everybody to have a reasonable website? Mm -hmm. So the I think space that, of it all, right? Yeah. Yeah, the square, yeah, exactly. And I think you've got enough hysteria and FOMO around the metaverse that it kind of could work. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Chapman, where I teach, uh, as you can imagine, is having like probably every major institution a metaverse freak out. Sure. <laughs> 
Like, what do we do? What do we, what do? How do we do it? Where do we spend the money? Who do we hire? All that stuff. I, I mean, they're just, I don't even think they're quite there yet, but I'm not, you know, there's also a lot of different parts of the university that no doubt are not talking to each other. So this will all come to a head. And when it comes to a head, one of the things on the table will be, well, let's not be idiots. It's hard. So let's start small. Let's do what Stanford did. Let's have a little branded place with a couple of lecture halls and, and maybe a fake football stadium. And, you know, if it works and we're still using it a year later yeah. and anybody on this campus has cared, then maybe we'll build more. Right. So I think how- they, it's an interesting way to kind of get people up on training wheels. They can say they're doing... Metaverse. I don't. I don't think you can call Engage as a centralizer. It is not. It is the opposite of Web three. Um, but as we have also discussed, you know, a Web three environment may not be right for everything. Mm-hmm. Right. A Web three. You know, I don't. I like my bundled Apple services. I'm not looking to have that disrupted by an unaccountable protocol. Mm-hmm. You know. I'll. You know. Let me. Let me deal with my relationship with Apple and how trusted or not trusted they are. Right. I mean, they're more trusted to me than an anonymous protocol that no one controls. Right. But but all the things you're talking about are these little peg points that we can go back in time and look at how, as you mentioned, like who's going to emerge as the leaders in the sector, the thing that everybody just chooses to use. Right. And those are these interesting human dynamics that are hard to define. Um, But as people keep chewing on the monster, just like happened with you know every website trying to find its way and then these various services and then we look at well google was the one that emerged right but it certainly wasn't the first and it, and it wasn't the last um and and others that kind of become sector leaders now we're seeing enough energy around all of these different companies trying to find their virtual presence beyond just a traditional web presence within the use case and and they know like from a, from a university standpoint they know how much online services are being used, right? Um, and yeah. how much time people are spending in a web environment versus a physical environment, even when they're on campus. So those are known issues, right? In their dorm rooms and so forth and so on. Um, and of course, you know, people like us are using these kind of tools all day, all day long. So there's continued impetus, there's continued investment. And in the years to come, we're gonna see who emerges as the ones that really own the space. Like we mentioned Teams earlier, we're on Zoom right now. Um, you know, Apple has their own ecosystem to do this. Epic has their own ecosystem to do these things. They'll likely be 10 or 15 yeah. real Web3 superstars and thousands of, of pseudo superstars and then sure. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that just have a presence because it's so cheap and, and easy to have a presence just like we have on the web today. So you remember that, um... Pico was purchased by ByteDance, the company yes, that owns TikTok. Right. They're making a play, right? They're making. A uh, mess, there's been play. there's been news this week. They opened up a number of positions in the U.S., which can tell us a bit about their strategy. So they're trying to put together a game studio, as well as people who, um, you know, as well people who would market games. You know, marketing organization. It's all in the West Coast, Seattle, and the Bay Area. And, you know, something like 45 positions, so not nothing, not, I don't think, like, we're going to go after Quest 2 with <laughs> 45 new positions, um, but it seems like they're 
you know, trying to open up the consumer market for the uh, Pico Neo 3. And it seems like, at least based on, on what I've read, I've, I've not used, I've, I have a Neo 3, I've not used it with a PC, but supposedly using it with a PC is a little better mm. than, than the Quest 2. And if that's true, you know, a $500 headset could find a place in this ecosystem. Right. With a wireless link to your PC and, and, and all kinds of goodness that way. Yeah, yeah. You would, you know, it's interesting because you, we know instinctively that someone has to give the MetaQuest some sort of valid competition, even if it's at a level that, you know, Meta's going to throw so much money at it and so much marketing dollars and so much resources at something that they're going to own it just by the dollars they put in it. But sometimes the smaller group that's a little leaner um, yep. can actually make an impact, right? Well, look at, look at what, what Steam has done with the Valve Index. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's a, they're not selling millions of them. I think they've sold about a million of them. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of money and they're charging a thousand dollars. It is not a lost leader. And it's for that customer that wants that experience and wants to be in that ecosystem. So, you know, you and I know that having only one ecosystem is not a good thing, right? I mean, for sure. tech giants would say that they want to own it all, but truthfully, we and want- there's, And honestly, there are a lot of people who have no interest in the meta metaverse, period, but who are interested in VR and are still believers, but they want a device that they can control. Uh, and so I think that may be uh, a place for the- oh, Neo. I hope so. I hope so. Diverse, diversity is good. So Justin is ready to come in. Let's bring him in. Okay, great. So everybody, just to remind you, this is Justin Barad. He's the founder and CEO of Oso VR, which does surgical simulations um, for both training both today's surgeons and tomorrow's surgeons. Um, Justin is also a practicing uh, orthopedic surgeon uh, and um, and also a former game programmer so probably a, a traditional radio host by the uh, i know i know well pro probably <laughs> the most qualified xr ceo there is welcome to the show good to see you justin wow what an introduction that was quite the way to start today thanks for having me <laughs> we're pleased to have you congratulations on all the continued success thank you very much yeah it's been a wild ride and uh, plenty more to go but so happy with where we are i mean you just got you guys in the past six months have just pulled down probably twice as much as you had previously raised in the last five years. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty <laughs> close to accurate. It's, it's crazy to think about, but- uh, I mean, the first yeah. time we talked was in early 2017. Yeah, I think, you know, we were probably like, you know, single digits back then. So, you know, every, everything starts from somewhere. And, you know, this started from an idea and a sort of uh, a deep passion for a problem that you know, really interestingly, around 2016, when we got started, I felt was a growing and imminent existential challenge for healthcare. And, you know, we're starting to see that today, which is, you know, it's not great to see problems get worse, but it accelerated much more quickly than anybody thought. And now one of the key challenges we have with healthcare delivery is related to the speed at which we could train up healthcare yeah. professionals and the quality that they're able to provide. And the it's a huge challenge right now. And, and VR is, you know, uh, it would be great if it was further along, but it is 
really helping. Um, you know, there are very few people who have not used OsoVR in some capacity, either in practice or or during their formal training at this point, which, I mean, even I'm kind of surprised to hear. It's like amazing. Yeah. People are like, oh, yeah, I use this. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> so for our, for our listeners, go back and give the elevator pitch on what OsoVR is so they understand before we start to dive in deep, give us the blush on what you do and how you do it so they understand how important it is and what's happening. Yeah, no problem uh, to do the uh, virtual elevator pitch here. I am. Um, so, you know, as you guys mentioned, I started out my career in video game development at, at Game Credit with Activision, which I was very proud of. And I had an introduction into the world of healthcare through a family member that became quite ill. And, you know, honestly, I just woke up one day and I was like, hey, is there a way to use software and technology, not necessarily for entertainment, but to help people? And so I ended up pursuing biomedical engineering with this like strong desire to invent new healthcare technology, but I didn't know how to get started with invention. So I was kind of asking around for advice. And this one mentor told me something that really sticks with me to this day. He said, Hey, Justin, if you want to invent something, you really need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he thought that one of the best ways to understand medical problems was to be a doctor. So I took his advice, like, Really, literally. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> I, I did not know. I had no idea what I was signing up for, I think, in retrospect. But, you know, went to med school, became an orthopedic surgeon. And then, you know, as I'm going through my training, I'm in surgeries. And this it's not all the time, but it was enough that it raised an eyebrow where people would be like, hey, Justin, can you kind of scrub out, maybe Google what to do? Like, we haven't done this in a while. We've never done this surgery before. And I'm like, wow, that, that's pretty interesting. So it started to kind of understand, like, why that seemed to be happening and more and more. And what I found is really kind of three core pre-pandemic dynamics. Uh, one is there's just too much to learn. So like we've gone from French laundry to cheesecake factory, right? Accelerating science and technology is just like blown up the library procedures we're expected to know how to do and demand. Uh, one day I was asked to operate on a gorilla with like a one hour heads up, which was <laughs> a, a whole podcast in itself. Like that's a wild story, but we're dealing with gorilla-like situations of what feels like a daily basis now in healthcare. Number two is, modern surgery, modern procedures are way more complicated than they used to be. So all of these newer things that people are very excited about, like robotics, minimally invasive surgery, the learning curve is like 10 times longer. You have to do it 50 to 100 times to do it at a minimum proficiency level instead of 10 to 20. And then finally, the what is very surprising for people to learn is we really lack a way to objectively assess technical skills in healthcare. Unlike aviation, where you train on a simulator every six months and just get rechecked that you're good to go, Whereas in my career, the one objective check I had, I was asked to play the board game operation and remove some pieces without buzzing, which I did. And I'm actually kind of proud of, but that's sort of state of the art at the moment. And then obviously, you know, down the line, the pandemic really accelerated things. But around this time, I got involved in VR with the Oculus DK1 because my gaming background and passion, I'm like, wow, what an incredible solution. You can anytime, anywhere, train on any procedure, use your hands. It's affordable, portable. You can get realistic cutaneous haptic feedback. You can train as a team and train remotely, which is, as we were saying earlier, a huge issue right now, and then get um, objective assessment. So kind of built the first prototype for OSO in 2016 with the mission to improve patient outcomes, increase the adoption of higher value surgical techniques and technologies, and democratize access to surgical education. I met my co-founder on the internet, paid him with some savings for my bar mitzvah. Thank you, grandma. And uh, you know, some investors caught interest and you know, got dropped out of Stanford, went full-time in 2016 to try and solve a, a problem. And once again, that I care more about probably more than anything in my life outside of maybe pizza. <laughs> so, you, so you glossed over kind of an interesting moment in your life's journey. Um, you said you, you basically 
became a physician. You became a orthopedic surgeon. Is this a correct statement? Am I? Yeah, I still am. I practice on weekends at okay, Orthopedic Institute for Children at UCLA uh, doing a pediatric orthopedic trauma. So broken bones in kids, monkey bars and that sort of thing. Right. So you're, so you're a practicing physician right now and pursuing yes. this technological layer from the best point of access, which is understanding what you as a physician actually need to accomplish uh, and how you train and how you learn. And I like you made that reference to the, to the flight simulator in aviation world because you know, simulation in aviation is the order of the day. Like, you know, you don't get into a commercial jet without going through many, many, many hours of simulation. And because of the logic of a cabin that we can build either physically with screens and, you know, a heads up displays and haptics, right? And, and a sort of a, 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 like a theme park style um, haptic system um, with the hydraulics, um, what you're doing is using virtual reality technology to sort of bring that same level of simulation to various surgical environments, right? And, and give us a sense of, of who's training, the kind of scale that you have, uh, like what are the real world sort of use cases of how this is being used on, on, a, on the kind of scale and scope of what you're seeing right now? Well, you know, in terms of who is using our product, you know, we're, we're training everybody, but I would say the core group is what I would call the early career surgeon. So um, this is an area not a lot of people know about, but when you finish your, so your formal, you go to med school, your college med school for four years, at least in the US, and then you do your formal training. So this is internship or residency and then fellowship, which you know can be like five to eight years, depending on how much you do. And that's really where you're learning to do surgery. You don't learn really anything sort of surgery wise in med school. Um, but once you're done with that and you're out of practice, that's actually where it gets really hard. Because what you're doing, in effect, is opening a restaurant. You see, I use a lot of like food analogies. <laughs> and so the, the first part of opening a restaurant is you're like, okay, what am I going to put on the menu? You know, what procedures am I going to offer my patients? Because they're like infinite to pull from now. There's so many. So that in itself is kind of a big challenge to understand what's out there. Because the vast majority of it, you will not even have seen a single time in your training. It's just there's too much. You can't get that big of a slice. Then the next step is you actually have to learn how to do those procedures. And we talked about the learning curve is like 50 to 100 cases. And you're doing this like very rapidly in a very short period of time. So it's a lot of pressure. And so that is where our platform is really most frequently being utilized right now, where um, surgeons are using OsoVR to explore and discover new procedures and understand, you know, what should they be offering their patients? What do they feel like they'll be good at and be able to deliver effectively? And then using it to then learn how to do those procedures. And it's not replacing in-person training. What it's doing is making it much more effective. Whereas we used to do these very expensive cadaver labs where you get a bunch of people together in a hotel ballroom and maybe they have a wedding or bar mitzvah later that night. It's kind of a weird <laughs> dynamic. Um, and you're practicing on these people who have donated their bodies. It's like an amazing sacrifice and commitment, but it is rep one of a hundred rep learning curve. Mm -hmm. And the data shows us you're going to forget 90% of what you learned within a week. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, you're going to like the, the grand finale way too early. You know, you're just kind of blowing your wad on a very expensive, important event. And so what we do is we pre-train in Oso. You work your way up 60 to 80% of the learning curve. And we have 
I think now five or six peer-reviewed studies that show that this improves your performance anywhere from 200 to 300%. So it's very effective. And then, then you go to that in-person training and you've turned it from an introduction to a master class. Mm-hmm. Now you're just refining your skills with a much higher level of retention and then going on to do this procedure in patients. And in terms of sort of scale, we're being used in well over 30 countries and we train in any given month, maybe around 4,000 to up to 5,000 healthcare professionals in a month. Well, and that's an exact reference again to the aviation industry, right? You train in the simulator, you train in the simulator, you get more and more sophisticated, you build up your muscles, and then they put you in the real thing and you get up into this multi-million dollar device uh, that has human hearts and souls in it and get it up <laughs> later for real, right? I mean, um, I, hopefully, I guess pig, pig hearts and souls eventually with some of the yeah, transplant yeah, technologies still, being still developed. Terrible. But, but um, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, one of the key differences with with aviation is that, you know, it's 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 a very sort of defined set of things that you'll be dealing with in aviation. There are these low frequency, high urgency situations you need to be prepared for, but you kind of know what you need to know. Whereas in healthcare, it's like, it's kind of like a, a very much broader pool. And so to give you an example, I remember in fellowship, um, I had, you know, very, I was, I was training at Boston Children's Hospitals, like very subspecialized, like number one peds ortho institution in the world. And I had a pediatric congenital hand, like right hand surgeon, basically, right? The equivalent of that, uh, who was covering call. So basically just whatever comes in the door, you do those surgeries. And she had, she like mainly operates on like babies and had this like, you know, 200 pound, 18 year old with an open femur fracture come in. She runs to me and she's like, I haven't done this surgery in like two mm-hmm. to three years. I wish there was a way I, and it's going in like 20 minutes. I wish there was a way I could like kind of do it a couple of times and just sort of get comfortable with it again before I do it on like a human being. But I just, at that time there, this didn't exist. And, and now we can do that. And it's like, that's really fascinating. It's like, you know, that scene in the matrix where, you know, they plug themselves in, learn how to fly a helicopter. It, it does feel like that a little bit. It's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's real invention, right? Is and innovation is there's a need, there's a real represented need that someone brought to you and you said, yes, I have the right tool for this. So I've I mean, a question related to your touch point about, you talked about the game operation. And maybe you're doing this and maybe you're not, or maybe you're thinking about it, but it'll be interesting for our listeners to know this. So as you're delivering this professional product into the professional world with obviously professional price tags and the way that you maintain it, are you thinking about kind of opening up and gamifying this and letting regular folks that own a quest <laughs> um, play your version of VR operation and actually kind of try out what it feels like to do an orthopedic surgeon, to do a heart surgery, to do a brain surgery, is that an aspiration of yours? And if it's not, would it be an aspiration of yours after we start talking about it? <laughs> um, yeah, that's no, a really interesting question. Um, first of all, we're all human. We're all regular folks, right? We're all the same. Um, doctors uh, sort of uh, breathe and, and eat pizza just like the rest of us. Um, you know, I would say actually this is something we've, we've done for quite some time. We, we did an open innovation challenge with the U.S. Department of Education to see if we can leverage immersive technologies to provide uh, better and more accessible what's called career exploration for high school students and college students. Um, and actually, OsoVR ended up winning that challenge. And the I think part of why we won is, you know, there I, I see this firsthand, especially in my own specialty of orthopedic surgery, which is like, horrifically misrepresented from, especially from a gender standpoint, it's getting a lot better, but 
you know, if you look at data from like 2014, which is a little while ago now, something like 4% of practicing orthopedic surgeons were women, which is like kind of insane to think about. I don't think there's any other profession that has that much of a mismatch. And so people are like, why is this happening? And what they found is that people were applying for orthopedics way too late because they didn't realize that they liked it or that it existed. And the people that were applying, they were applying because their parents were orthopedic surgeons or their neighbors were. It's it's the kind of people that you grow up around or, or that you see this thing. And so if we could provide opportunities earlier on to medical students who are women or in other underrepresented groups, they're more likely to apply. And if you extrapolate that, well, in med school and college, um, and, and high school, if we can provide these experiences to people that, that don't know surgery exists, that don't know what the different specialties are, that don't know what neuro- neurosurgery is or ENT is um, or you know, anesthesia or, or even being a radiology technician or a surgical tech or a PA, an advanced care provider. Like there's, there's just like a really wide world of really exciting jobs that feel like science fiction. My first day of surgery, I thought it was, I thought I was like, it was a fever dream because I'm like, this can't be real. Um, Because we're doing the surgery from Gattaca, and I still think it's like one of the most wild days of my life. And so I say, yes, our our goal is we're working on some things to give access to OsoVR to everybody so that people can try these different careers and we can attract people back to healthcare. Because I I don't know for sure, but I'm starting to feel that we're getting a little bit of brain drain because, you know, one... You, you don't have people that are aware that these things exist. Two, if you are aware, you look at a career in healthcare, especially something like surgery, which takes 14 to 16 years to just like get a job. And then something like technology, where like in a couple of years, suddenly like you're a VP running a team and you're having a similar, if not bigger impact in a much lower amount of time without kind of like needing a lot of therapy and blowing up your life. So you know, you're looking at those two things, what rational person would choose this thing over here? And so we really need to level the playing field, we need to get more smarter, brighter people applying, but we also need to look at like, hey, does it really take this much? Can we use technologies like Oso and and other technologies? And maybe like NYU now, it's three years from med school, why can't it be two? And, you know, part of the reason why residency is so long is, it was developed a century ago by William Halstead at Johns Hopkins, partially to hide his cocaine and op- uh, morphine addiction, which we can talk about <laughs> in another podcast, which is really interesting, uh, which ended up working really well. So it, it worked out, but you know, it's starting to show its age. And part of the reason so long is because you're just sitting around waiting for surgery to happen. Well, if we can make surgery happen virtually, maybe we don't need to sit around for as long. Maybe we can shave a year off. Maybe we can shave two years off. And Canada has actually done some work with what's called competency-based training that does just that. And suddenly now we've shaved three years, maybe four years off of training. We've made it a lot more futuristic, a lot more higher quality. And suddenly this looks like an attractive field again. And also we've increased the top of funnel, the pipeline, because we've gotten people really excited about it. So the answer to your question may be a little (laughs) too in-depth there, but yeah, I think about it a lot. So yeah, go ahead, Charlie. (laughs) So I was going to say, you have a great radio voice, Justin. We have to have you (laughs) maybe as a guest host. Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking w- while you were talking two two things. One is, uh, I, I hope you can share with us a little bit about who the customer is, right? Who's buying? I mean, you were talking a few minutes ago about who the user are is, but I'd be interested in who the customer is. Who's buying the simulators? How how do you sell them? Um, are there accessories? You know, I think there's a company called Fundamental VR that makes sort of a a, a little robotic scalpel that gives you feedback. Um, you know, tell us, tell us uh, if you can uh, attack both of those 
the accessory or haptic part mm -hmm. of it as well as the economic part of it. Yeah, no, I mean, so, I mean, ultimately the ultimate beneficiary of our technology is the patient, right? That's what we're really focused on. Um, and then, yeah, our users are healthcare professionals, but how does the business work? So, you know, early on, and these questions are actually really tied together. So I'm glad you asked both. You know, when I was thinking about Osevier, the idea of simulation is not new. I'm not like, it, it doesn't take a genius to be like, hey, maybe practicing on like living humans is not like the best course of action, right? So, you know, simulators have existed for a long time, but as a business, they were, they were mainly being sold to hospitals. And you would have, you know, often they incorporated some sort of kinesthetic force feedback, some sort of haptic feedback. Um, and there were these big, big bulky simulators, like $100,000, $200,000. And, you know, maybe a hospital would buy one, a residency program would buy one. Uh, I, I've never seen one buy two, but I guess it's possible. <laughs> but but what is the value proposition of one simulator for a hospital, right? How much how much revenue is that helping them bring in? How much is that improving outcomes? How much cost is that saving? And so, you know, I was curious about this. So I went to one of the top simulation labs, maybe in the world. Um, and the, you know, this lab is like, has every technology. It's like unbelievable. They have a simulated space station pod where you can simulate real space surgery, you know, without the microgravity, but everything else. Um, even like an accurate star map outside the window for, I mean, I, I don't see how that helps, but it's cool. And I'm like, how often do people come here? This is incredible. And they're like, well, you know, if we're lucky, maybe once a year. And so like, how much, how much is that really helping? Right. And, and how much of a perpetual motion machine of a business, how much of flywheel can you really get going to, you know, the business model is what distributes your technology around the world. You have to create this like product market fit that creates this hockey stick type adoption curve. And so I'm like, okay, this selling to hospitals doesn't seem to be working, but at the same time, I am being flown all around the world by Johnson & Johnson, by Stryker, by Smith & Nephew to try and train me on these newer technologies so that I can bring them to patients. Because if you don't know how to drive a car, you're not going to buy a car, right? And so these companies actually train us and spend billions of dollars a year in training us. And so they'll take us to one of these labs. These labs are very expensive. They'll cost like $200,000, $300,000 for a one to two day course where you get maybe one to two repetitions, typically on a cadaver. And then when are you doing the actual operation on a patient next week, two weeks? It's actually sometimes like three to six months later because you have to find the right patient and the device needs to be approved by the hospital, something called a value analysis committee. And so now just put yourself in a surgeon's shoes. You're operating on a patient, the device you used one time six months ago with a learning curve of a hundred cases. How is that going to go? And those are the cases where they're like, hey, you know, Google what to do. It's a dumpster fire. And like, by the end of it, you're like, oh my God, this feels unsafe. Like, let's just stick to the older stuff. Like, I don't want to put patients at risk because we really don't at the end of the day. So I saw that that was not working. And I'm like, hey, maybe we can offer this technology to the medical device industry to increase the adoption of these newer technologies and also increase their utilization. Because, you you know, a lot of times hospitals will buy a robot, but never use it because no one knows how to actually like, but that's know, crazy, right? Because where else could you do the simulation more directly than through a screen, right? When you're doing these robotic surgeries, right? Well, somebody I mean, else has their eyes on the patient, the doctor is operating the simulator. There, there are many reasons why robotics, uh, like this is this is the counterintuitive point is, is it's much harder to learn. And it's, you know, these robots, like if, if I wanted to come train you, Charlie, and like, I'm not going to fly you out to me, I would need to like send three 300 pound shipping containers with an engineer to calibrate it when he gets there and set it up or she it's like, 
it's wild to even just get your hands on one of these things is very difficult, especially during COVID times. So that was how we initially positioned Oso. And that was a wild success. You know, we work with Johnson and Johnson, we work with Smith and nephew, we work with Stryker, uh, we work with Zimmer Biomet, all the majors in orthopedics. And then the interventional space is also now a major focus for us. So, you know, we do aortic valve replacement, EVAR, um, we're, we're starting the neurovascular space interventional urology. So um, working with the medical device industry has been a huge success. Now, part of the approach and, and part of uh, what we identified is that, hey, we're, we're not going to take the huge custom force feedback simulator approach because the issue that I saw, it, it was, the challenge is not that it's not realistic enough. The I challenge see. is that because it's not portable and not affordable that you only have it in a small location that you would need to go to. And we talked about like, people are only going like once a year at best. And, you know, so why is that happening? Well, you know, put yourself in my shoes. I, I just finished my call shift. I've been in the hospital, maybe somewhere between 30 to 35 hours. And then they're like, Hey, by the way, Justin, why don't you go drive eight miles to the simulation lab and get a few reps in. And I'm like, have you lost your mind? I'm like, <laughs> I might die just on the drive home. Because like one day I was trying to like pull into my driveway, I kept falling asleep as I was like turning in and I like had to circle the block eight times. It was like terrifying. So I'm like, and I would like to see my family at some point, maybe eat something. So it's like, you know, we're working extreme hours. We we don't have the luxury of of driving somewhere. You know, if if you need to go through a door to get access training, you're not going to use it, right? It might as well be in a different, on a different planet. And so, so to me- um, Justin, let me ask you, I want, I want to ask you a very specific question. I know you're going down a, a line of, thought. But oh, I, yeah. No, I, I, know. I, I can pause the rant. I can resume. I want to <laughs> some very specific things. So, um, and this will be a very specific question, right? As, as someone who has been through a da Vinci procedure, um, are you at the level, and are you, you know, as, as one of the medical companies that you mentioned and talk about, where you have a virtual da Vinci inside Oso VR, where someone can train on, because that's one of the most popular robotic systems for very sophisticated surgeries. Um, are you at that level of, of um, deliverables on something like this or with other devices that are at that level? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we work with, uh, I, don't, I don't even know how many surgical robots at this point. So we have many robots on the platform that, you know, you can do end-to-end surgeries and procedures with. I'm going to touch on that in a bit. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, once again, so the key challenge here is accessibility, Right. is it is critical that we can just carry this technology with us, that everyone can use it, and we can use it every single day in between cases while we're sitting there. Like sometimes we're just sitting there for an hour or two while. So this is you know, this is all about the portability of the quest, as opposed to getting scale- getting, for example, photorealism and adding a lot of haptics. It's more important for it to be simple and scalable and shippable and, and accessible sitting there. Time accessible accessible and affordable and, and and scalable yes and so that everyone can use this and talk about photorealism in a bit if you like because that actually was an interesting discovery where we found that was more important than we thought um but i would think look, surgery would be hugely important because the thing you have to get a look at is the thing you can't see yeah i mean i think there's an element of clinical accuracy but there's also an element here of behavior change like right. you can have the best technology in the world. And I always say, I have an expression, data is not enough. It's not enough to just show that it works. You got to get people to use it. And so how do you pull them in? And you know, part of that is the artistry of the visuals and creating something that's stunning and jaw-dropping. And there's actually thousands of years of precedent for using art to drive change in medicine. But 
Um, back to this sort of accessibility component, the there is an obsession with uh, force feedback and the idea of surgical simulation. Everyone, every human being I've ever spoken to has a very strong image of what this should, de- should be, and I did too. And um, I think I really realized that maybe I, I wasn't thinking about this the right way when I wanted to try the best haptic feedback that was out there. Cause I'm like, this has to be really realistic to use this, right? So I'm gonna go use the Da Vinci robot to really see what top of the line haptic feedback is. So I go to use a Da Vinci. I'm like, kind of like, you know, moving these little things on pegs, I'm suturing. And I turn to the rep, I'm like, wow, the haptics on this feel unbelievable. Like, how did you guys do this? I could feel the tension of the suture. I could do this so precisely. And they're like, oh, the Da Vinci has no haptic feedback at all. I'm surprised you didn't know that. It's your so, brain putting it all together, right? Yeah. yeah, felt like a bit of an idiot, but yeah, like the brain is doing something called digital synesthesia or sense right. substitution right. and filling in the gap. So I'm like, well, what does the research seem to show? Because this is like kind of nuts. And if you look at the past 20 years of kinesthetic haptic feedback literature, the vast majority of studies, if you compare these like super high fidelity simulators with force feedback to things that have no haptic feedback at all, there is little to no difference in skill transfer. It does not seem to help for whatever reason. And secondly, people don't seem to like it. It feels weird. It suffers from uncanny valley effects. Mm -hmm. And so part of the reason why DaVinci doesn't have any haptics is the number one requested feature was haptic feedback. But every time they gave them a prototype with haptics, people hated it. Finally, they're like, (laughs) screw it. And they give them one with no haptics at all. And everyone loved it. And they're like, this feels great. And like, you know, the human brain is is a great mystery. And so we are really overemphasizing something that has not proven to help. And when you remove that component, we can get this technology feasibly to every single healthcare professional in the world. There are 1.1 million surgeons around the world and like 20 to 30 million healthcare professionals that are involved in procedures. Imagine every single one of them is improving their performance two to three X, you know, maybe cutting their surgery time, 20, 50%, five Xing their learning curves. Like this is a stepwise improvement in healthcare that is very rarely seen outside of things like vaccines or new drug categories, right? So it's all using video game technology. That's what's so wild about this space. And that's why if you look at the area under the curve, scale and accessibility trumps these like minor improvements in in fidelity and things like that by such a large margin that I'm like, we really need to focus on just getting the technology that exists today to everybody because it works really well. That's what the data shows. And now it's just more about getting people to use it every day as part of their practice. Now, I, I could talk about your question a little bit about like, you know, simulating the robots and things like that, but any questions on that for you well, guys? We're, we're actually running out of time here. Okay, well, maybe <laughs> part you two. You are too good at giving this talk, but- well, um, I did a podcast simulation before this, so I felt uniquely prepared. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you just a couple of short answer questions. How big is the company now? We're over 200. Whoa, and so what kind of simulations are you offering now in addition to the one you started with orthopedic surgery and, and those driven by device manufacturers. What what have you got? How is your offering expanded? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, OsoVR is a universal simulation platform. We can simulate any procedure um, with our unique core technology. I, I would say probably our key areas right now continue to be orthopedics, spine, um, any any interventional procedure. So it's talking about structural heart, neurovascular, things like that. Mm-hmm. And any robotic procedure, these are and and endoscopy, I guess, as a category as well. These are big focus areas for us, but theoretically, we can create any procedure. Like, I think the first time we talked in 2017, 
you were less than 10 people. Yeah, you're growing <laughs> massively, which is a very exciting and a good provability that simulation yeah. does work in these fields. Um, for the healthcare professionals, hopefully around the world that are listening to this and getting a link to it at some point when you share it, um, what would they expect from an economic standpoint, kind of the costing dynamics of this? Um, because it's obviously not consumer level stuff and you're putting a huge amount of resources into the very accurate simulations of surgical procedures. Um, how would they sort of either learn about what it costs or give them a set of just a blush of like, how much would they spend to sort of get themselves up and ready for to use these things? Well, you know, like we talked about earlier, there's stuff coming down the road that's really exciting um, that, you know, we can't share too much of to, to broaden the access. But right now, if you're a healthcare professional, you can go to Johnson & Johnson or Smith & Nephew Stryker and get access to this technology at no cost. Perfect. You will get a headset and you'll be able to train in, in OsoVR and, and uh, on the on bread and butter sort of common procedures, but also cutting edge and latest and greatest technologies. All right. Well, that's all the time we have, Justin. Thank you for coming on the show. It, as always, is great to talk to you. Um, Ted and everybody else, uh, have a great weekend and we'll see you next Friday. Uh, again, thanks to our sponsor, Verbella, and we'll see you next Friday. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Thank you.